Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Negotiation. In this episode, we speak to an old friend of mine, Akio Tanaka, co-founder and partner at Headline VC, a technology-focused VC firm headquartered in Tokyo, Japan, with investment teams deployed in Beijing, Taipei, San Francisco, Berlin, Paris, and Sao Paulo. Akio is an entrepreneur who unintentionally became a VC. Despite passing his comprehensive exams at the University of British Columbia while pursuing a PhD program, which of course has very little to do with his job today, Akio and his friends decided to quit, build their own startup, and that of course was later acquired by Adobe. Akio Tanaka is one of the most influential investors in Japan and has been known to be passionately committed to the local ecosystem. Akio talks about his own professional backyard and walks us through his investment methodology with some examples of the companies he likes to invest in and why. He also talks about his own startup background and the acquisition by Adobe, along with some insights on the Japanese entrepreneurial ecosystem and some conversational dabbling into personal interest verticals like ski equipment on demand services and self-storage in Japan, among other interesting topics. Enjoy. One of the things we actually did when we launched Groupon in Japan, we actually initially went to the top brands. So we went to some of the best hotels and top restaurants in Japan. These are the people who don't do discounts. So the way we structured it was that, A, we are not actually creating a permanent discount for them. We're super time limited, maybe from their point of view, they're basically creating a trial campaign for new consumers to test out their brand just once. And you have to also buy it in a very limited amount of time. So because Groupon was not a permanent form of discount, somehow we were able to convince those brands that it's not devaluing their prices or perceived image. Home to over 4 billion people, the Asia-Pacific region boasts one of the most powerful consumer markets on the planet. Not only is it home to half of the world's under 30 population, but it's also home to more than half the world's internet users. It's a market that no globally-minded organization should ignore. But entering markets like China, Japan, or Southeast Asia is no easy task. Just ask the likes of Microsoft, Google, Uber, and Facebook. However, times are changing, and with the right partners, doors are slowly opening as more and more companies find success growing their key markets in APAC. I myself spent eight years in China, mostly as a venture capitalist, helping early-stage tech companies grow in the Asia-Pacific market successfully. This show is dedicated to uncovering and examining successful Asia market entry and growth strategies by interviewing the experts who've done it before and truly understand what it takes to be successful in the region. My name is Todd Embley, and welcome to The Negotiation. Brought to you by WPIC Marketing and Technologies. Akio, welcome to the show. Todd, nice to see you again after so many years of uh, not seeing each other. We want to give our listeners uh, an ability to place you mentally on the map. So where in the world are you sitting today? Actually, today I'm uh, uh, dialing in from uh, Taipei, but typically I cover uh, uh, all of Asia, but especially Japan. So I spend maybe... When, when there is no COVID, <laughs> now I pretend it's not there anymore. I spend maybe, you know, a third of my time in Japan and then the rest of the time uh, in other parts of Asia, uh, like Taiwan is one of them, but I just came back from uh, Bangkok and uh, we do cover, our, we are early stage VC that covers Japan plus Southeast Asia. So that's our 
backyard, so to speak. Yeah. Well, and I was going to say, you're probably enjoying the food, uh, first of all. Now, yeah, you, you might be different, but a lot of us who have left China, you know, the, the one thing that we are last Asia, the one thing that we really miss is the food from over there. I don't know why. Uh, but I always, I, like my, my, I shouldn't say my heart belonged, but my stomach belonged to, to Taipei, to be honest with you. I just love the food there. Well, I think it's this yard is always greener. Uh, syndrome because you know I used to live also in San Francisco and one thing I miss here is good Mexican food. Mm. I haven't really found one. <laughs> yeah, okay. We have we have Mexican restaurants in Asia, but you know, like salsa is never really that fresh, and guacamole always tastes a little bit off, and chips. So, I know some some of the recommended Mexican restaurants I've been to, they were serving Doritos. <laughs> I was <just> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and I don't think any Mexican would own uh, anything to do with uh, Doritos as a no, no, no. I don't think Doritos food. was ever Mexican food. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, you touched on it a little bit about something that you're doing, being that you know these these spots that you frequent in in APAC or mm. kind of in your backyard. But why don't you officially tell us a little bit about your background and the work that yeah. you're doing? Sure. So uh, you can say I'm a geek that accidentally became a VC. And uh, so my uh, real background is that uh, I was in the late 90s uh, entrepreneur in Canada, actually exactly where you are, well, nearby in Vancouver. And um, uh, I went to actually uh, uh, UBC uh, in Vancouver and I did my undergrads, masters, and I was halfway through my PhD program which has nothing to do with my job today. <laughs> uh, I, I was doing my PhD in urban geography. But my, my side passion and hobby always was uh, computer programming and internet. So uh, in the third year of my PhD program, I just had passed my comps, uh, comprehensive exams and then decided to quit with my buddies that I, I had in, at university and uh, did our own startup. So I must say that was my first job ever. I had never worked in my life. And uh, I, can, I can tell you with, with assurance that we definitely didn't know what we are doing. And there was no startup ecosystem like you, we do today. There's no something like China Accelerator that we can go enroll in. <laughs> so we're basically a bunch of amateurs who didn't know what we we're doing, but we were. Uh, you know, good at what we're doing, which is software development and doing internet stuff. And we also very early, there weren't that many companies back then. And uh, so what we ended up happening was um, our team got acquired by another U.S. software company uh, after three years maybe of operating. And uh, that company went through two more mergers and uh, became today's Adobe. So mm. through those uh, uh, series of mergers, somehow I ended up in Adobe. And prior to Adobe, actually, we were part of the company called Macromedia, which if you're old enough, you might know it's the company that made a product called Flash, uh, which gave birth to YouTube, by the way. Yep. And uh, so during Macromedia, I was actually CTO in Asia, uh, based out of Tokyo. And uh, I was still in a product and tech role. But somewhere, something happened during that time that uh, our US CEO came, hey, Akio, you guys are doing something very different in Asia, like mobiles growing faster than US. And, you know, there's also a lot of broadband uh, penetration activities going on in Asia, which created bigger market for 
video for Flash. So he decided uh, we need to get some of this Asia growth DNA by by the form of investment and M and A. So suddenly, he created a new department under himself uh, to invest in Asia, and uh, and he said, "Oh, since you're the only guy who knows about uh, our technology in Asia, you should just run this VC." And I told him, "Well, I've been an entrepreneur, but I've never run a VC before." And he said, "Well." Writing a term sheet is so much easier than learning about technology. So since you already covered technology, we have plenty of people in CopeDev uh, that can help you with the mechanics of investing. So he gave me about three weeks to pack up. <laughs> so I left Tokyo and moved back to San Francisco and long, you know, started doing uh, venture activities. So that's how I accidentally uh, became VC, and I still actually owe it to uh, this man named Rob Burgess, who was the CEO of Macromedia at the time, and he's actually still a board member of Adobe, and also a personal LP of our fund. Uh, he really uh, made a change that I had I hadn't planned on myself. Yeah. Okay. So a lot of questions in there. So funny yeah. enough, like your path is extremely similar to mine, getting mm. into the world, and it was Cyril. Um, uh, our mutual friend, because uh, we yes. met through Cyril, uh, and he was the one who brought me in to help take over China Accelerator because he was launching hacks and needed help and said, you know, hey, listen, I said, I've never, I've been an entrepreneur, never an investor. I'm not a finance guy, so, you know, this and that. And he said, ah, don't worry, you know, you figure it out. You know, you've already done the hard thing. This is the easy thing. So I have a question, though, about what, what you were building. What part of Adobe would that be relevant to uh, today? Okay, so we are uh, uh, part of the uh, server side of. Oh, so, so just go back to before Mac, about Adobe. There is a company called Macromedia. Uh, Macromedia had uh, basically two lines of products, but they're all towards all about web development. So my my, my background, my DNA is web, and uh, so Macromedia had a couple of front end technologies uh, like Flash which we use for animation and uh, casual games on the web and video. Then we also had uh, HTML development tools like uh, Dreamweaver, which is a very popular tool among all the web designers, professional web designers. And then we also did have a server-side technology called Cold Fusion. And uh, I was actually part of that side of uh, Heritage because what we did uh, uh, as a startup is we were actually building... uh, middleware, a software on top of the cold, cold fusion uh, framework. So this is a very early attempt in the late 90s to build uh, web-based uh, uh, productivity and software systems, something like practical you can do using a browser beyond just showing articles or, you know, pictures. Okay. Okay, cool. That's... So I, I'm, I'm uh, originally a server-side guy. <laughs> okay. Okay, yeah. good. And, yeah. and I can probably still do part-time SQL programming if I had to. <laughs> wow. SQL. I remember that kids. Remember, remember that? So a little bit now exists anymore. <laughs> I know that's why I'm saying it. Um, so now you're an investor. Tell, tell us a little bit about what kind of companies are you typically investing in, you know, from, from, uh, you know, vertical stage, check size, geography, founder profile, whatever. So uh, we are, so, 
uh, uh, Headline Asia, and Headline is a global VC with presence in US, Europe, Asia, and Latin America. And uh, each of Headline's fund is really focused on early stage. And for us, early stage normally means maybe late seed, pre-A, series A. So that's our core stage that we invest in. Now, uh, geography-wise, our Asia team covers what we call Japan plus Southeast Asia. So the key markets for us is Japan and um, parts of Southeast Asia that we have strong ties to. Like, you know, now we have a lot of investments in Hong Kong, Taiwan, Singapore, which is more advanced, more Chinese part of Southeast Asia. And then Vietnam, Thailand, uh, Philippines. These are the markets we are all currently more active in. And we're slowly making uh, our way into uh, uh, other markets within the region like Malaysia and Indonesia. But uh, uh, you can think of we are like Japan plus the parts of Southeast Asia where actually Japanese economy typically has strong ties with. And Philippines, Vietnam and uh, Thailand are actually three of the markets where in the past Japan had strong ties to. Now, this is now I have just done the official talk. (laughs) <laughs> but like, I can tell you what I'm actually interested in. So I'm extremely biased towards companies with good technical founder. And uh, because I'm, you know, I'm, I was originally an engineer and coder. I really like founders that are um, engineering a technical background because I have, I, have, I have this belief that technical founders look at the world differently from non-technical founders. And uh, and if you look at g- global uh, uh, landscape and, and think about all the big tech companies, you know whether it's Apple, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, all of those companies were founded by uh, uh, engineers. Even at Adobe, people don't realize, but you know, Adobe was uh, uh, found, uh, founded by two uh, 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 PhDs and inventors who actually created very early image processing algorithm. So it's very tech, technology-focused uh, company. And let's move this into China, which is a market you're also familiar with, right? With the exception of Alibaba, because it's a very special, unique company, uh, if you look at Xiaomi, Tencent, uh, Baidu, all those other big, and, and even um, ByteDance, uh, these companies have a very strong technical founder. And I do believe uh, uh, the reason those companies are, are big is that the founders are not salespeople, right? Salespeople can create profitable company, but they don't necessarily think of creating a system or platform. Whereas engineers are always thinking, okay, how do I make a system for this or that? And I think this kind of thinking allows them to create something far bigger far scalable than say sales or marketing oriented founders. So personally, I think it's a, a, a good idea to back such founders. And then we have a, a back a series of uh, uh, technical founders and uh, some of them ended up having becoming a unicorn and good exit for us. So that's my personal bias. I want to bet on geeks who are good technical founders. Based on some track record of success, too. So that's interesting. That could be an entire podcast, probably a podcast that I should start. Nobody can debate you on it because you've had a good track record of success. 
some of the flip side arguments are, you know, best product never wins or rarely wins. But I think you're you're talking about a different stratosphere of development where you can build a hundred million dollar company. Sure. Just be a great sales guy, build an okay product, and then just market it to every Tom, Dick, and Harry and be brilliant at sales and customer service and what have you. Uh, You can certainly do it, but you're not going to change the world unless you really have some deep technical understanding. I would maybe hesitant to say, but you you are kind of looking for companies that are changing the world from a a technology-based kind of foundation. Yes. I, th- I would think so, because I do also have this uh, uh, my own ulterior <laughs> motive that I'm, <laughs> I'm looking forward to the days where geeks rule the world. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm pushing the agenda. <laughs> well, it's uh, <laughs> I, I think it's that they already do. It's just the rest of the yeah. world doesn't know it yet. Uh, and maybe it's better Perhaps. that way. Yeah. Okay. Can you share some of the examples of the companies that you have been investing in or grown? I know you gave a synopsis of maybe their their DNA, right? We know that yeah. now. But could you know, some of the ones that have been very successful, uh, maybe you could talk about who they are and why they were successful. Yeah. yeah. So uh, maybe I can give you two of our uh, uh, unicorn cases. Sure. And, uh, uh, um, and uh, they're in two different geographies. Um, one um, is from Japan. So uh, about about a decade ago, we backed a company called Free. It's spelled like, you know, freedom is free, but with three E's, triple E's at the end. And uh, so Free is uh, like Intuit of Japan. So they're the most successful accounting platform uh, for, for Japan. But it's very different from Intuit. Uh, it actually, uh, partly it's, it's historical. Right? Intuit started... Um, I believe in the eighties or nineties, you know, with the uh, client side software, whereas free is a, is a product of uh, AWS. So it's all cloud. And uh, so it's the most popular uh, accounting package being used by businesses in Japan. I think their market share is something like one in six, all businesses in Japan use uses free. Now the significance of this is the founder. So there's a guy named Sasaki-san and uh, we met him when he was just four guys working out of an apartment in Tokyo. And uh, so his family actually, uh, 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 I think runs a barber shop in Tokyo. And I, th- I, do, I think he does have a license as a barber. So he can actually probably shave you and give you a nice men's haircut. But he was also an engineer who worked at Google in, in Japan. And uh, he was in charge of a small business segment for Google. And uh, so he had a lot of, he spent a lot of time and realized, you know, Japan's small businesses were incredibly inefficient. And uh, on one of the inefficient uh, area was accounting. So a lot of people still did a lot of things on paper and Excel. And every tax filing season, he see his parents and his other clients uh, wasting weeks trying to basically clean up their accounting record so that they can do tax filing. So he realized, okay, this is a big problem and nobody's solving it in Japan. So he decided to create this company called Free 
to peep, uh, to basically peep, to uh, liberate and free people from those menial tasks. So one of the first killer feature he created was a he thought people were wasting too much time creating accounting entries. So he automated that by connecting all the banks and credit cards, so you can do semi-automated uh, accounting entry. And he used AI to automatically classify things according to the Japanese accounting code, which was sometimes also very tedious. So he solved one part of the problem. And then second part, he uh, Japanese government at the time was starting to open up electronic filing, e-filing for tax, okay. like e-tax in Canada and US. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, but it was an incredibly difficult process. So he worked with the government to simplify it. So he came up with this product where A, you could automate most of your accounting entry. And then with one push, you can actually file your business tax. And there's no other product like that in Japan. And that really took off. And uh, something like uh, six or seven years later, he went public in Tokyo. And uh, uh, it's still a multi-billion dollar company. And uh, it's a top dog of the accounting business uh, in Japan. So this is, I think, uh, one case of a very strong technical founder who also has some insights into solving businesses problem, right? And because he was um, very tech focused, he was able to create a product that just solved that. But what's interesting about Free is it's known in Japan as one of the top companies for uh, engineers to work at. So because he's a geek, he also wanted to create a very comfortable work environment for other geeks. And uh, uh, it's a, a very happy place, I believe, for many engineers to be working at. And I think this is a great example of kind of software companies we would like to back and, and invest. And I think whether it scales or not really depends, of course, not just on the idea of the product, but how it's implemented. But I think the, the point about backing great engineers is that uh, there are a lot of great engineers who fail. But... When things do succeed, because engineers are always creating systems, it has the ability to scale. So I think that's the, maybe, in my view, that's the key point. I don't think every engineer can create a successful product, but when they do, because they're setting up to create a system that can just scale. Good point. Again, there's so much to unpack with that. I think it's really interesting. I'm going to move on and I want to I want to start, mm. you know, kicking kicking the can down your resume here a little bit. But sure. and we're going to get into Groupon Japan and some of your your venture building with them and stuff like this. But one question before we get there, because I don't want to leave this topic right away before asking, what are your thoughts on the entrepreneurial ecosystem in Japan, first of all? And how would you juxtapose Japan's startup ecosystem with those of its surrounding neighbors? Japan is a very strange place, right? So it's still the third largest economy in the world after U.S. and China. But, but the entrepreneur pool is extremely small compared to those uh, giants like U.S. and China, especially compared to China, which has a very large entrepreneur pool. So that's always been a challenge for us, uh, investing in Japan. So we did actually try to address this issue by starting uh, uh, Entrepreneurs uh, Society in Japan. We, we call this IVS, and IVS is the longest-running Founders Conference in Japan. Uh, we've done this, actually, this precedes our fund. So we've done this now for 16 years. 
And in the past 16 years, I think we've had 20,000 different uh, tech founders come join our event. Our event is actually set up like an off two, three day offsite away from Tokyo and where people come uh, meet each other every six months and uh, learn from each other. And, and this actually platform has produced many new businesses. And in fact, we also created a large volunteer ecosystem around this. Every year we have like 100, 200 volunteers who help us run this uh, com uh, community. And usually volunteer members are students, uh, uh, very business-minded, tech-like entrepreneur-minded students in the last year of university, or maybe they're uh, first or second year employees of large tech companies. And because they are no founders, they cannot come to our event, but they can still become a volunteer and come join us. Um, what's interesting is that from this volunteer pool, I think we have at least one IPO, meaning some people came to join us our event as a volunteer. They got inspired by other entrepreneurs. So they launched their own business and they came to our event and presented it in a pitch contest and got funding. And, you know, like, so I had uh, the quickest case I had was this uh, lady, uh, Nakasan. She came to join us, I think around 2010, uh, when she was working at Facebook, I think, and uh, was a volunteer. A uh, couple of years later, she launched her own business and uh, a lot of uh, community members of uh, IVS were her first angels. And then uh, soon later, he, she came to pitch at our pitch context at the event. And I think maybe uh, five years ago or so, she went IPO in Japan. So, so we think uh, this pool is still small compared to other uh, markets, but we've been very actively promoting and growing this pool ourselves. What's holding it back? Generally speaking, I think people were under the assumption that the being, working for big companies in Japan was the most secure way to plan your life, which was true maybe until 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And then we started seeing, you know, massive failures of big companies uh, 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 like, you know, uh, you know, Toshiba and, and all the other like big Japanese brands, which previously people thought were uh, uh, invincible. But in fact, they are just as vulnerable as any other companies. So and, and, and with that, people started thinking, well, OK, am I going to be doing this job the rest of my life when I, I don't even have assurance? And uh, people started, I think, taking more risk. At the same time, um, this in this last 20 years, we've starting, st we started seeing more successful entrepreneurs. And so there's a lot of role models out there. Even people who left their secure jobs, say at Sony and those big companies in their middle-aged years, and uh, still able to create a, a new company. So I think... Uh, it's not quite there like China, but we're starting to have this entrepreneurial culture in Japan and it's changing. All right. Well, that's yeah. good. And thank you for that. I appreciate you taking that one off the cuff. So diving back into your time, the interactions, we'll call them for lack of a better, and, and people understand why, with Groupon Japan, it was a venture building project that you worked on after founding your firm. I guess, first of all, did the group buying model resonate with Japan? And what is the current state of, of uh, maybe Groupon Japan? 
Uh, and then I'm going to come back at you with another question broadly about discounts yeah. and promotions. But let's start with the, the group buying model and the current state of Groupon Japan. This Groupon Japan is actually one of our uh, uh, themes of investing into Japan. So as, as I said just, uh, just now, that Japan has a entre- growing entrepreneurship pool, but it's not as big as Japan, uh, China or U.S., so what this has is creates is that there's lots of gaps in the market in Japan. Like when you see a new tech trend in the US, maybe there's three, four companies going after that opportunity in the US market. And China, probably you can multiply that by 10. Right? There's even more people going after the same idea. In Japan, uh, often we don't get that many. And sometimes there's a new exciting areas uh, untouched. So it creates a lot of pockets of opportunities. And uh, our, of course, preference is to find someone who's already doing it and back them. But if there's really no one's doing it, sometimes because we have our own uh, company building culture, we would actually create a, a, a team uh, uh, and uh, often hiring from our community uh, of entrepreneurs and then go after the new market ourselves. Now, Groupon was one such um, a project. But there is a twist. So uh, as I mentioned earlier, Headline has a global presence, right? We have a Europe team, US team, and uh, Latin American team. So Groupon was originally invested by our European team. So our European fund invested in the team uh, behind uh, the city deal, which was run by Rocket Internet back then by the, uh, the famous or infamous Somewhere Brothers. And uh, um, Rocket Internet created a city deal in Germany, which later became Groupon International. So, so I've been actually hearing about this uh, from my colleagues. And uh, um, one day uh, uh, I decided to go deep dive and uh, ask them you know, a little more questions. So how, what is the uh, secrets of success at Groupon? And, uh, and after we studied it, uh, with the help of my colleagues, we realized, uh, Groupon was not about the website, but it's about the, the, the systematic, um, uh, 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 operational team that they built behind the website, which had a higher impact on, on their success. And when we saw that, we looked at Japan and we are starting to see uh, a small number of Groupon-like companies. And uh, so my initial thought was, oh, okay, there's a teams out there. Why don't I just go invest in them? So I, we interviewed quite a few of them. And uh, then it dawned upon us, many companies were simply copying Groupon's website, but not its operational excellence, or didn't even bother to study. So, in the end, we decided, oh, it might be actually quicker for us to simply build our own team. And um, so uh, one of the key elements of Groupon was to having a large national sales network. So luckily, uh, uh, we knew a guy who has built an amazing sales team. And I think his team was a number one uh, reseller of broadband services to businesses across Japan. So I went to this guy, Hirota-san. And asked him, hey, we want to do this Groupon-like business in Japan. And uh, um, we've heard you have one of the best salespeople and that sales, you build one of the best sales network in Japan. And I asked him, I want 20 of your best salespeople to launch a new startup with me. 
And uh, his first reaction was, Kyo, there's your door. <laughs> Goodbye. I don't think I'm going to give you no. 20 of my best salespeople. No, <laughs> not super interested. <laughs> so, uh, but we didn't leave the, we didn't leave the, uh, his meeting room. <clears throat> we stayed in a little longer to explain to him about what was happening in Europe and US, how big this opportunity was. After 30 minutes, he basically said, okay, you can have my top salespeople, but there's one condition. He said, I'm coming with them. So the founder himself <laughs> decided to join uh, our group on effort in Japan. And the, the last was a legend. So we went from 20 people to 600 people organization within the first six months. And our revenue run, run rate went from zero to uh, 240 million US a year revenue run rate in, in the same period of time. And I believe even to date, that was the fastest growing e-commerce company built ever in Japan. Now, um, so one of the uh, uh, interesting lessons, and, and, and what happened as was that, that that became our official joint venture with Groupon uh, in the US. And uh, 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 we were able to actually exit in pre-IPO by selling our stake back to Groupon. Now, uh, today, uh, Groupon is still there. I don't think the market is as strong. I think probably they, it lost some of the entrepreneurship, entrepreneurship culture we had and, you know, of our crazy uh, 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 initial launch days, but uh, I, I think it has now settled into as one of the e-commerce category in Japan. And uh, and the guy who uh, helped us launch it later became also our LP. And uh, since then, uh, we are also uh, trying to do some additional venture building together. Yeah, life has a, it's a funny way how, you know, everything happens and you look back now, I still do the same how did I get here? Uh, and, and all the random, seemingly fluky, lucky, spontaneous things that happen to, you know, meeting somebody coming out of a, out of a building who works for Google's an engineer as a barber, you know, like random, super random. Yes. But hey, that's life. An interesting question here, kind of tying what are probably very wrong perceptions of the consumers in Japan around whether you want to offer discounts or promotions. Like mm -hmm. you would think, you know, mm -hmm. if something is discounted, if you're lowering the price, doesn't that essentially lower the perceived value? Is it worth less because it's priced less? And how does the market in Japan view that? So yeah. tying that together into some sort of question <laughs> that has to do with Groupon, um, you know, some, some, some lessons. Do, do brands worry about you know, the discounts devaluing the product or service they're offering? I think that's always been the case. And um, uh, so, but one of the things we actually did when we launched Groupon in Japan is that uh, we actually uh, initially went to the top brands. So we went to some of the best hotels and top restaurants in Japan. These are the people who don't do discounts. And uh, they are the, exactly the people who had the concern you just mentioned. So the way we structured it was that, uh, A, we are not actually creating a, <clears throat> a, a permanent discount for them. We're super time limited, uh, 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 maybe from uh, their point of view, they're basically creating a trial campaign for new consumers to test out their brand just once. 
and uh, you have to also buy it in a very limited amount of time. So basically, because Groupon was not a permanent form of discount or time limited, uh, uh, restrict, very restrictive form of discount, uh, somehow we were able to convince those brands that uh, it's not devaluing their uh, prices or, 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 or perceived image because their normal price is still the same. And uh, they're only doing this, you know, very rarely, right? It's not, they don't do Groupon every day. They, we, we plan a campaign so that it, when it comes out, it's special. So that's, anyhow, that's how we were able to get around that question. And uh, at the time, uh, I think not all brands agreed with us, but enough of them agreed that we were able to launch the service. And it, that is wonderful because it's, I mean, I, I think it's almost a poorly asked question by ourselves uh, to you because it's not discounts. It's, it's, it's volume buying. I think it's a perception and we've seen how well the, the likes of Costco and whatnot have, have done as yeah. well. Let me ask you a quick question. Is Costco in Japan, does it do well? Yes. Uh, so <laughs> extremely well. And also in Taiwan, I heard the, the, uh, 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 the Costco in Taipei, uh, which one is, I think there's a, a, I've been a there. location called yeah. Neihu yeah. is the most successful Costco location globally. So I think that model is working well in Japan yeah. and, uh, and, and Taiwan. I'm sure the other parts of Asia as well, but I think yeah. it has a different meaning. I think in Asia, because a lot of people like in the U S Things you buy in Costco, sizes aside, you can still buy in other places. But in Asia, Costco, it might be the only way to get access to a lot of American <laughs> products, which we miss okay. when you relocate from North America here. Yeah. And uh, so it became, a, I think it became some kind of sacred experience. Okay, we're going to go buy some stuff that you yeah. can buy in the local Well, it was all the Kirkland products. That Kirkland brand yeah. was really, you know, all they had yeah. really in, in, in Taiwan. Then it was, then it was all the local stuff that they didn't have all the, the other stuff you used to find back yes. home. But. So uh, I'll ask you another question. Um, again, almost playing into this this weird kind of uh, understanding of the culture over there. What about self-storage? They, you know, the, the Japanese seem like mil- minimalists, right? Density of the population restricts the size of the home and the amount of the storage. So either they don't have stuff or self-storage is a booming business because they have to put it somewhere. Self-storage actually... Uh, has been uh, a big part of uh, at least urban Japan for the last three, four decades. And then there is a big companies like uh, Terada Warehouse, Terada Soko. They are one of the big uh, warehouse operators. They do normal warehousing, but they also do personal warehousing. And uh, uh, for a lot of people in Japan, because the housing condition is like Hong Kong, right? The uh, average um, uh, 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 size of Japanese homes, especially in urban areas, is very small. And unlike what you see on uh, Marie Kondo's uh, Netflix series, most Japanese people are not like her. They cannot keep things tidy and get rid of things. So people do rely on self-storage. And some of those self-storage places are very advanced. Uh, for example, I know I have a few friends who have that uh, uh, remote wine cellar that they can control from the app. And uh, so they have a temperature controlled self-storage. And uh, and the service has uh, uh, improved nowadays. So you don't actually, you never have to go to your self-storage anymore. You just request, it will come to you. Yeah. Uh, so whatever item you want to put in or take out, 
uh, 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 you can actually use it, do it remotely. And even for businesses, like our office also use self-storage facility in Tokyo, and mostly to put stuff that we use for events. Yeah. And, uh, but uh, I think we had this space for over a decade and uh, I've never been there myself because we only send ship stuff there. And when we need something out, we just request and they ship out. So you don't actually have to go there anymore. So, yeah. it's, so it's definitely there, but it's in a different, maybe a little bit different form form of self-storage, say, than ones that we see in uh, North America. Yeah. I have a logistics background. I was with UPS long, long time ago. And so it's an interesting thing for me. I love to pay attention to logistics. I think you need certain densities to really kind of operate logistics. I think if you look at Rent the Runway, I mean, they were logistics experts. That's really what made them successful. The the, the women that founded that company. It wasn't about yeah. dresses or being stylists. It was being logistics experts. I mean, look at uh, Arizona Ice Tea being able to print the price on on the can for so many years. Really, just operational um, and procedure um, experts more than they were marketing or what have mm. you. Right. I mean, so anyway, worth it to find uh, to to follow that kind of stuff. I think it's interesting. Uh, reminds me, hey Siri, send me my sweaters. Um, because it's getting cold, it's fall now. Uh, so I'm going to need those soon. And that's the kind of thing, that's the kind of availability that I would love to have to be able to just say, Hey, Siri, yeah. say, you know, have them send me my sweater box. Uh, actually, there is also another stories that I use myself though. So I love, I love skiing, but I, I don't love carrying skis around. So th- there is actually ski storage companies in Japan where they keep your skis and maintain it. And then what you do is uh, if you, let's say, go skiing in uh, Hokkaido or Niseko, those places, you uh, let them know your arrival date, then they ship your skis there on before your arrival. So when you arrive, your skis are there. And when you're done, you ship it back to them. So I never have to carry my skis uh, with me on the airplane. <laughs> and, uh, and they, you know, they wax it, maintain it. So I, I think these kind of, kind of a, Storage platform service is actually is a great idea. I love that. I love that. I mean, think about the future of the digital nomad. I've, I've even thought about, hey, listen, I want to travel around and I want to live in a few different countries a year. You know, maybe, you know, I just have a service where I've got maybe two households of stuff and one gets sent to the new place I'm going. Meanwhile, they come and pick up and pack and store my old place. And then, you know, I can give them the six weeks advance notice to ship to the next place I'm going while they come and pack up the old place as we move. This is coming. This is all coming. And I hope it comes soon because I would really love to do that. Okay, let's get back into. um, So now you were with Adobe, Director of Emerging Markets. And in that role, you the organization invested in KKBox. Tell us about that company, your experience with them, what you saw there. Yeah. So KKBox, uh, one of the first uh, company we invested in uh, uh, in Taiwan. And uh, uh, it was very interesting because this happened, I think, around 2005 when uh, uh, in Asia, music piracy was at its peak. And uh, Taiwan actually had, I think, a couple of notorious piracy platforms that were extremely popular. So basically, during that time, music was, quote unquote, free. <laughs> no one was paying for it. The whole industry was dying. And then um, it came this KKBox founders. They're actually one of those technical founders, um, uh, especially the, uh, the CEO, Chris. Uh, he's, he's got a triple E background, so he's got engineering mind. He was actually also an invent- inventor, by the way. 
He financed his college education by inventing a medical device, which I believe, uh, uh, I think maybe Johnson and Johnson uh, uh, bought his patent. <laughs> so he's this, this, so the company has this amazing uh, technical founder, but who was on the mission to solve a problem? So this is actually pre-Spotify. They wanted to, he actually, he wanted to save the music industry from piracy. And his thinking was, okay, uh, 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 those P2P download platforms are strong because they're so much more convenient than buying a CD and this immediate availability. So he was looking at the user experience. Okay, our benchmark is that we have to come up with something even more convenient than those piracy sites. And of course, when he realized, when look at the piracy, so one of the problem was organization of information and catalog. Yes, of course, you can find a lot of songs, but they're disorganized. And you, you may not have the full catalog. And it's also very difficult to search, collect, and create your playlist at the time. So he decided to create, the, you know, at the time, the largest digital library of uh, songs, uh, commercially available songs uh, that are legally uh, uh, streamable. And uh, he basically came up with a Spotify-like model several years before Spotify, and they offered it for like five bucks a month. So their thinking was, okay, they're gonna make it extremely convenient and extremely unaf uh, extremely affordable so that it, it, it's not at least for people who don't mind spending five bucks for music. It was far better alternative than piracy. And uh, that, you know, really took off. And then later we helped them expand to Japan. So they're behind uh, infrastructure provider for uh, uh, one of the top music streaming services in Japan as well. So I think this is actually a great example of, again, technical founder looking at a specific problem, coming up with their own ways of uh, solving the problem uh, through technology. And uh, yeah, I, I think most people think that Spotify invented music streaming, but KKBox guys were doing that way before Spotify service got launched. And wasn't trying to remember if it was Baidu where, and I don't think the, the, the broken Chinese version of Google, but didn't Baidu also, what they did was different. They, they actually provided it free and I think they got discounts, but they actually paid for the licenses for the music. And then wasn't there like a Baidu.music.cn type of link where you could go and get all that music? I think Baidu had something, but they shut down later. But it yeah, yeah, all, they did. They uh, it was for, did. for China, and uh, KKBox was, of course, for Taiwan. So there are some geographic uh, distribution differences. Well, listen, I know that you have to go. I know that you have a hard stop, and I also know that we've only gotten through half of the things we're going to talk about. So this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to let you go. I can say, say thank you. And then we're going to have to rebook you and we're going to have to get into the other half of the talking points okay, sure. at another time. Okay. So we're going to put a pin in this one uh, to our listeners and to our audience. This is, this is part one with uh, Akio Tanaka uh, from uh, Headline Asia. 
going to come back. We're going to get him again. We're going to schedule again, and we're going to get him here for part two at a later date and cover a whole bunch more stuff. So thank you again, uh, Akio, for coming on the show. Well, thank you, Todd, and uh, looking forward to part two. <laughs> exactly. So for those of you who are li- who are watching us on YouTube or other uh, video streaming, don't forget we have the podcast, the audio only on uh, Stitcher and, and Apple Podcasts and Spotify and everything there. And for those of you listening to us on the audio version, don't forget to go to WPIC.co. Look for the podcast section. You'll find the video versions on YouTube and the WPIC channel as well. And you can see Akio and I live and in person on here from all of us at WPIC and for Akio. Thanks again for watching and we'll see you again for part two. Growing a company is hard. Doing it in a foreign market? Exponentially so. The best piece of advice I can give you is not to do it alone. When you start looking at the Asia Pacific region for further expansion possibilities, and I sincerely hope you do, make sure you choose the right partners to do it with. My good friends at WPIC Marketing and Technologies have almost 20 years of experience helping brands, just like yours, enter China, Japan, and Southeast Asia. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Negotiation, and if you're interested in being a guest or want to connect with me or any of our team, please reach out to us at podcast at WPIC.co, and be sure to rate, comment, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.